everybody, welcome to episode 79 of Literary Disco, Shackleton's Journey. Today we will head off to the icy seas of Antarctica with the book Shackleton's Journey by William Grill, a graphic novel covering the exploratory expedition led by William Shackleton that began in 1904. But before that, we will do a children's book-themed bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will take down one of our favorite children's books from our cluttered shelves and talk about it. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey! Hey, Todd's wow. brain is snapping because he's in the middle of writing a novel. So. Yeah. So you know how at the beginning of the show, Ryder, you, you say novelist and critic Todd Goldberg? Yeah. What I'd like you to say from now on is the person who loses his mind every two years or so while typing. <laughs> That, that's how I'd like to be described from here uh, on out. That's just describing a, a writer in general. Can I ask you guys a personal question? Yeah. As, oh, no. as fellow writers? Of course. Yeah. Like, I know that um, writing is not equal to, say... Um, coal mining. Coal mining or any shitty job that has ever existed. That it's actually a pretty great job. I get to sit at home in my underpants, imagining other people's lives and typing. Mm-hmm. Why is it so hard? <laughs> Why is it so hard? Because if it was easy, everybody would do it. Oh, if it that's was such easy, a everybody would do I it. I think it's hard because. But it's true, isn't it? No. I think most <laughs> jobs are pretty hard. That's what makes them work. Right. No, uh, but I think. But the, the, the a lot of art creation requires more personal willpower, and writing what's both great about it and what makes it hard is requires less busy work. You know what I mean? So when I'm having a shitty day at my regular job where I don't feel like doing anything, I just, like, answer emails or whatever, and that's still work. But writing, you have to be at the forefront of your brain if you're going to get anything done. Right. And then, you know, like, I get into bed. So I can't even talk about the book that I'm writing. It's a secret project. We'll talk about it at some point. Um, Yeah, it's a secret project. Um, But I have another project that... I have to write soon, which is a sequel to my book Gangsterland, which I'm really excited about uh, about writing. Um, but so what happens is I get into bed after writing all day, and I'm laying there, and right when I'm like at that point where I'm so tired that there's no possible way I'm not going to fall asleep in five seconds, I'm like, I should just try to make it like another thirty minutes and write thirty more minutes, and that's that's what crazy people do. Like that's the definition of a crazy person. I'm so tired I can fall. I should try to do some more. That's just dumb. What's wrong with me? Can you guys fix me? No, we can't help you. It's actually probably a good habit to get out of bed and, and get more <laughs> Well, just might as well. Might as well get it done. So, what, I mean, what I used to find helpful when I was writing more regularly than I am now, which I'm trying to change, so I should, I'm in no position to have an opinion here, but, you know, stopping in the middle, you know, when you're not, so that you have a place to pick up later, so you have an idea to come fresh to the page with. Right. It's always helpful. Yes. That's what I tell my students. So so this is the other existential crisis that I'm having. So I'm I'm working on this book and I need to finish it and I'm stressed out and I'm I'm working 40 hours a day typing. Um is that I also, you know, I'm I'm a professor and I run a graduate school in creative writing and writing for the performing arts and so I'm talking to my students and telling them the things they need to do and how to improve their books and in my mind I'm thinking yeah, dumb fuck. You should do that. <laughs> right. You, Todd, you should do that. 
very complex. What about, Ryder, you're writing a lot now. Are you struggling as much as Todd is struggling? Yeah, not not as much because I'm... Well, you know, the screenwriting is is different. It's You agonize through so much outlining, and that's really... And I also write with a partner. You know, I write with my brother. So I think it's a completely different thing. Like, I, I, I know what Todd's going through because I definitely have had those moments, and I probably will in the next... For the next two weeks, like right now I'm in a project where my brother and I are finishing our detailed outline. So now it's going to come down to writing, actually sitting down and writing the, the scenes. And that, I mean, hopefully we've taken enough notes and we have enough information that we're not facing the blank page. Um, but I know like Todd, you, you don't really outline and I know a lot of novelists don't. I mean, that's part of what's great about a... I don't know. I, I feel like I... Uh... I need the guidepost more now than I used to because when I was younger in writing, I didn't have anything else going on. Like, I didn't have anything else in my head. And now, every time I sit down to write, I got all this other crap in my head. Like, um, like I had a great idea the other day for, you know how, you know bread bowls? Like where you get a bread bowl and you get soup inside of it? Okay, where, where is this going? I'm worried so about it. So here's you. my idea. A bread bowl made of cake and inside of it is frosting. Eh? Sounds kind of gross. Sounds gross. <laughs> also, it sounds like a Twinkie. Yeah, you just invented the Twinkie. <laughs> a big Twinkie. Are you inventing the Twinkie in your spare time? <laughs> I just invented the Twinkie. <laughs> I might have also just... It's basically a cake that's been turned inside out. <laughs> the frosting. So it's it's a Twinkie without a top. This is going along with your gold burgers idea. Let's it let's not let's not. Oh, we're not going to talk not. about that because you actually want to do that. You want to capitalize on that. We're not. That's too sacred for literary uh, disco. We can talk about okay. it. Okay. I mean, okay. It's along with your secret novel project. We can't talk right. about. Right. We'll, we'll so save here's it for. The thing. No, no. We can talk about it, um, and then we'll get to the important stuff. So. Because I'm looking for angel money on this. Here's the idea. I'm 100% on board with this. I want to come out and say that I am against Todd's wife and for Todd on the pro Goldbergers idea. I would eat this. So here's, here's my idea. And listeners, let me know what you think. It's a food truck. So number one, it's a food truck. Number two, it is called Gold Burgers. And it is Burgers on Bagels. I would eat that. <laughs> okay, so is it a thinner bagel than normal, or is it like just a regular bagel? Right, it's just a regular bagel. Like full no, it's like it's like a New York bagel, so it's a big one. It's got a right. bit more density oh, to it. Right, and sounds awesome. And my my other thing is, you know, we do chicken, we do turkey, we do does the we do meat veggie. also have a hole in it? Yeah, yeah, it has to. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the meat, the whole thing has a hole in the center. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. So you're going to make beef patties or turkey patties or whatever with a hole in the middle. Like a, like a pineapple ring? Yeah. You don't need to have a hole in it. No, you do. Otherwise, it, make... I think it would look weird. And the juices would what shoot you... out the middle. I don't know. Well, I don't... Haven't you ever had a bagel? Well, first of all, a good New York bagel, it's not like there's a big hole. That's true. It's all right. kind of smushed together. Right. And like when okay. you eat a bagel sandwich, that's... I mean, that, basically that's true. you just invented exactly. the bagel sandwich. But right. I just, so today I've invented the uh, the Twinkie and the bagel sandwich. But I have a vision Would you of... keep kosher? Or would you allow cheese? And uh, well, There's no way he's keeping that... kosher on this shit. <laughs> I, I, I think it's hard to keep kosher in a single food truck. But if, you know, if I expanded, we could have like a sidecar that kept kosher. 
But I have a vision of a chicken filet burger on a cinnamon raisin bagel, and that would be fucking delicious. That actually sounds pretty good. Yeah. And I've never, I don't know why I've not gone the next step and tried a burger on a bagel. Um, yeah, this wouldn't but, be that hard to make at home and, like, actually taste. Because you haven't yeah, we, done any testing, right? Like, you haven't no, made a... No. no, I haven't done any R&D, as He's it were. He's writing his book, writer. <laughs> He's very busy. I, I, I haven't gone the extra step of, A, seeing if it tastes good, or, B... Checking sort of the dexterity of the bread with a with, with a really good burger. My worry is that the that the the bagel might really just subsume a lot of the juices and it would be gross. Um, but you know we'll find out when we get the angel money and we roll out the fleet of food trucks in uh, hipster cities around America. I just oh. want to note that I think Todd first pitched this idea to me like three years ago. So I've had it for a while. Really yeah. waiting on the money here. No pressure, listeners. <laughs> but uh... also, I can't, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> I always I'm, imagine I'm willing to... like a blue cheese, like a burger with blue cheese and like a fresh red onion and an everything bagel. Wouldn't that be good? Oh, that would be delicious. That'd be great. I be actually delicious. know somebody in the food truck industry so we, we we could you know put some feelers out there and I, I i could i could ask them their opinion on this food truck because they, they yeah. somebody who has multiple food trucks and the the know. other thing that I, I probably haven't mentioned is that i'd need to use your likeness rider as my mm-hmm. face <laughs> i'm the face of goldbergers yes <laughs> i hope that's not a problem <laughs> I, I know I haven't discussed that aspect with you. Is that yes. my investment? Do I yeah. am I considered an angel investor if I just yes. donate my face to the cause? Yeah, they're like, All oh, right. is Ryder Strangler Jew? Huh. Who knew? I, that's an in-kind that's donation, Ryder. That is, yeah. that's right. worth a lot. Yeah, you know, we could the next time we do a live literary disco show, we could actually serve up gold burgers and see how. Oh, it this goes. is a great idea. So it'd be like a combo yeah. food book event. And we try the we try it out, see how it goes. We we have a pop up food truck of Goldbergers for our live show. Mm. Oh, done, <laughs> done. Well, and we were gonna do a live show in May, people. We didn't tell you this, but um, I dropped the ball because I uh, have been writing my book. But Julia's coming out in August, so August looks great for a live show again. Yeah, writer, Angeles, right? you were like out of the frame when we pitched it, but I assume you'll be around. Yeah. Um. So. People live show in August. We don't know where yet, but a couple things are gonna are gonna happen. There's gonna be burgers on bagels. There's gonna be hilarity, and by that point, um, either I'll have finished the book I'm writing right now, or um, I'll be in the midst of a very serious lawsuit. <laughs> All right. So, um, guys, what's this podcast about again? Books. All right. Let's talk about some. So, who's got a so, children's book they want to start us out with here? What do you have, Julia? All right, sure. I will start. Um, okay, so right before we started recording, uh, Todd said, let's do children's books. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling the <laughs> curtain back again. Uh, and I immediately knew what I was going to pick. Uh, because let's I have talk with the Bible. <laughs> so, uh, I have this book that... Um, was one of my favorite, favorite, favorite picture books when I was a kid, and I'm not really sure how I ended up with it in my house as an adult, but I have it. Um, 
It is The Story About Ping. Did you guys read this book? Very no. popular children's book. Um, oh, that does look familiar. Now that I see you holding up the cover, that actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I must have read this so, as a kid. Yeah. I think, well, it was published in 1933, and I think I had a, I was really into like Asian picture books when I was a kid because I have a lot of strong memories of various Asian picture books. I mean, a lot of people know Ricky Tiki Tembo. It's a really yes, good one. Um, but this book, I think my dad read this to me a million times um, doing a lot of Asian voices, which I absolutely cannot repeat here because it would be so offensive. Wow. Um, wow. But <laughs> Finally a chink in the pastel me, armor. He's a I racist. <laughs> Well, I think it was just more like a stereotypical than yes. you know, right. not necessarily yeah. racist, just doing a bad accent. Right. Is, correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. Correct. Which ends um, up being So anyway, this book is, it's uh, beautifully illustrated, and I'm going to talk about that in a second because I just looked up something interesting. Um, but it's about a little duck named Ping who gets separated from his 42 brothers and sisters and then he almost gets eaten by some Chinese people on the Yangtze River, where he lives. And then, of course, he has all kinds of adventures um, with cormorants uh, and all kinds of stuff. And he avoids getting eaten, and he's, of course, eventually reunited with his family. Probably only to be eaten very shortly thereafter, but that part's not in the book. Um and I really love this book. It was this adventure of this little duck, really classic children's book. And the illustrations are, they look like colored pencil and they're really beautiful. However, while you guys were talking about burgers, I looked up the authors because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't care who writes this stuff, you know, their point of view. Um, but right. I noticed just now that they don't look like, they don't look like particularly Asian names and they're not. Um, this is by Marjorie Flack and Kurt Weiss. And Marjorie Flack is from Long Island. Uh, and Kurt Weiss, this is really interesting. He, this is the illustrator. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. Um, he lived and traveled in China for six years uh, selling merchandise. But at the outbreak of World War I, he was captured by the Japanese and turned over to the British. He spent five years as a prisoner, most of them oh in Australia, where his fascination with the animal life inspired him to start sketching again. So... This prisoner of war oh, became weird. this uh, very famous children's illustrator, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, it's a really, that it's a really bizarre. cute little book. Um, maybe vaguely offensive. I'm not sure. I haven't reread it in a long time. <laughs> I, I'm going to go out on a limb here from your description and say it is. Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, it definitely walks the line between being offensive and just taking place in China in the 1930s. So, right. I don't know. I'll have to reread it. I'll have to reread it. I don't think we should avoid any book that takes place in another country from no. worry of it being offensive. No. No, that would be crazy. Um, um, but maybe don't do the voices. <laughs> or just come up with voices that are... No. You know, I would like to hear... Just straightforward... Well, is it yeah. actually written with an accent, like yeah. implied in the... Uh, the big line that I remember my dad saying, I mean, like, this is one of my most vivid memories, is, ah, duck dinner. So it's repeated many times. Um, ah, a duck dinner ah. has come to us, said the boy's father. I will cook him with rice at sunset tonight, said the boy's mother. 
No, no, my nice duck is too beautiful to eat, cried the boy. Okay, but it's not like it's written in accented English or anything. Oh, no, no, not at all, not at all. Your dad just added the offensive accent. Um, yeah, I I don't want to (laughs) overstate, I don't want to overstate it, it's just like cringing a little bit at my own memory. But it was very vivid memory, and I loved the book right. forever. So. Well, it's like, it's like the movie Christmas Story. And when you watch it now, it's like, there's a whole scene about how they can't pronounce their L's, those crazy Chinese people. Fa, ra, 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 ra. And it's like hysterical or, in 1986 or whenever that you know, movie came out. Right. And now you watch it, and you're like, why was that funny? What about, uh, what about 16 Candles, where every time oh, gong, the gong comes on, they bang a gong. You hear a gong. God, yeah. that is so offensive. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. And his, his name was Long Duck Dong. They right. called it. They, yeah, they actually called him Long Duck Dong. Yeah, we, we've talked about the racism of the eighties and nineties, the Asian <laughs> racism of the eighties and nineties that was somehow okay, like Rising Sun. Remember? Right. Michael oh, Crichton? right, right. It's, it's, it was a weird time for, for some reason, that was the last sort of American stereotype that well, we you know what acceptably used. This is a question that I had just the other day. Um, about my own childhood when i was a kid like Pollock jokes were rampant in my neighborhood like everyone had a Pollock joke i had no idea that a Pollock was a polish person and i can't conceive of a reason why in suburban walnut creek in 1980 nine-year-olds were running around with anti-polish jokes jokes. i I mean it's really weird and so we have the same thing i don't understand why i went down a rabbit hole a little bit the other night when i was thinking about this and it turns out that remember the tv show archie bunker uh or all in the family it was called archie bunker was you know fervently anti-polish and it was you know this response to the post-world war ii immigration of poles and all this other stuff and i was like well like that makes sense if a 50 year old man was saying it but as a nine-year-old why was i telling jokes about polish people it's really it's really weird yeah really really outdated but this is one of those things that i've I've had conversations with i never watched all in the family growing up or i mean i didn't know Mm -hmm. what i've never actually seen an episode of that show but i've heard people talk about that show as um sort of missed satire by a lot of america like the idea was that he was supposed to be a satirical character like we were supposed to be uh, you know, outside yes. of his racism, but the truth is that a lot of Americans just accepted his racism as the comedy, which is one of those things that, right? You know, we always risk with comedies like South Park and Family Guy, and you know, I think a lot of times people don't they don't quite understand the wink. You know, they're just. They, they, they don't get that right. it's a winking joke of a joke where it's like the racist joke being told by the privileged white person who doesn't understand or they don't get that. They just think the joke is the racism. Right. Um, and I, I feel like that's really dangerous territory in television. And it's it's always happened. And I feel like Simpsons had that problem. Like I know kids whose parents wouldn't let them watch Simpsons mm-hmm. and Simpsons less. But South Park certainly has that issue. And I, I think um, Family Guy is always... On yeah, all, all, the, all in the family was making fun of a racist. I mean, it was, you know, it was made by Norman Lear, who, you know, was a, a Jew living in Hollywood. Um, I believe he was a Jew. He must have been. He was making sitcoms. Hey! Um, there you go. There's a little racism for you. Um, but, you know, winking and nodding at 
here's this person in middle America that we should abhor, and it ends up that he, you know, he ends up being the butt of the joke. You know, he's making fun of the liberal politics, and he's supporting the conservative, you know, movement, all this stuff, when it ended up being, you know, a strike against that. It's, it's like people who, uh, there's a person I know, I won't say who it was, who thought, who didn't know Stephen Colbert was satire. Who, like, for the first three years Stephen Colbert was on, thought it was, like, that that's what Stephen wow. Colbert believed in. And I remember very vividly going, no, that, that, that's a bit. That's, that's an act. That's it. Yeah. But I still don't understand why at nine years old I was making Pollock jokes. It's, uh, it's well, I think so many of, so much of it is just a stand in for, you know, you, the joke is good. Like it has nothing to do with the race. Like I used to tell blonde jokes and I was blonde, you know, because it was right. the least offensive stand in for someone. For whatever. Stupid. Right. Yeah. Huh, that's a good point. The least offensive stand-in for someone stupid is a great name for an essay. <laughs> I actually remember converting jokes, like saying, what's a stupid person's invention? You know, like, I remember, because I remember hearing the Polish jokes about, like, you know, a screen door on a submarine, mm-hmm. an ejection seat in a helicopter. And, like, so I remember taking out the Polish factor, and ta- which is so, like, liberal, 1992 writer... <laughs> thinking he's so clever but yeah i remember (laughs) that's horrible that's almost worse you know just tell the stupid (laughs) polish joke what's what's northern california liberal for stupid joke so speaking of writer in 1992 what do you got writer what'd you pull out um i got a book that i actually discovered as an adult and now i am so you know i have a son uh who's only four months old and we've been reading to him every night because you know part of part of going to bed you know we have to create a ritual to get him to try and sleep through the night so we do a whole like you know song and dance literally a song and there's no dance but there's a song and then there's changing of the clothes and then we you know feed him if he's hungry and then we sit down and we read to him together and uh at first we were reading like actual like real children's books like with the pictures and everything and we realized like he doesn't care like he just needs at this age he just wants to hear words and hear us talking to him so we upped our game and started uh, reading a book that I, ha- I had read in college, and, uh, but it's a children's book. It's The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And I mm. am obsessed with this book right now. I, we're, we're like 50 pages in because we only make it about two pages a night with my son. Um, so it's, it's slow going, but I am loving it. And you know, part of it is obviously like you know, watching my wife do various English accents, which is endlessly entertaining. But also, this book is, it's a very, very strange book. I think it's stranger than people realize because most of us, like I didn't encounter the book as a kid. I encountered the Disney movie, which I don't even think is a full film. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually just short little episodes of Toad and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I remember going on that ride at Disneyland. But I, I didn't know what this book was until I was in college, and I, I think I've mentioned before that I took a children's literature class in, in college and read this book as part of that. And I remember liking it a lot when I read it in that class, but now I'm reading it, and it is so beautiful. It's not really a kid's book. It's actually, it's more like a, um, it, it reminds me, mo- it's a novel, you know, and there's animals, there's talking animals, but at its heart, it's sort of like inspired by Keats and Wordsworth and like 19th century romanticism. It's this very bizarre world view 
with these animals, these talking animals. And the, the, the craziest part about it is that there's no consistency in how the animals are animals and how the animals are people. And I find that mm. so freeing and creative and fun. And what, what matters most is their characters as character, like the, the way that they behave and the way they treat each other is, is sort of the most important aspect of their character. Like whether they're the water rat or badger or mole is kind of beside the point. But then every once in a while you have this, you know, reference to the fact that like badger or mole is, is more comfortable in badger's home because they're underground. And like Toad's home is a little weird because it's built above the ground. And yet they wear clothing. And yet other right. times like you're, they're able to be picked up and tossed aside. I, I'm only 50 pages into my rereads, but I don't think there's any humans. Um, but it's also just a beautifully written book. And there'll be sections where it'll just get lost in describing the change of seasons. And it is so beautiful and fun. I want to read, um, hold on a second. I want to read a section. Let me find it. Tucker, cut this part out. If Julia and Todd do not sing, then I will delete that. I like the way you work it. No diggity. No diggity. I want to bag, bag it, up. it up. I like the way you work it. No diggity. I got to bag it I up. I like to bag it up. Hail, 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 hail. Okay, this is this is a little long, but I think it'll give you a sense of, of what it is. So, in the wintertime, the rat slept a great deal, retiring early and rising late. During his short day, he sometimes scribbled poetry or did some other small domestic jobs about the house. And of course, there were always animals dropping in for a chat. And consequently, there was a good deal of storytelling and comparing notes on the past summer and all of its doings. Such a rich chapter it had been when one came to look back on it all. With illustrations so numerous and so very highly colored, the pageant of the riverbank had marched steadily along, unfolding itself in scene pictures that succeeded each other in a stately procession. Purple loosestrife arrived early, shaking luxuriant tangled locks along the edge of the mirror whence its own face laughed back at it. Willow herb, tender and wistful, like a pink sunset cloud, was not slow to follow. The purple hand in hand with the white crept forth to take its place in the line, and at last one morning the diffident and delaying dog rose stepped delicately on the stage, and one knew as if string music had announced it in stately chords that strayed into a gavotte that June at last was here. It's like these weird descriptions. Yeah. It's like, but it's it's this crazy purple prose, but then it's like the water rat. And he's like a dude and he's like a little English man in a tuxedo and like, you know, or whatever. It's like they describe, they don't describe these characters in clothing necessarily, but then like suddenly they have like a good breakfast together and they like sit down to toast and then Toad becomes obsessed with automobiles. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. How are there automobiles? And, and how does Toad have all this money? And then Toad has this gigantic house that's called Toad Hall. And you're like, but wait a minute. He lives, a, and then like Badger is getting lost in the woods and covered in the snow. But it's like so weird, but it doesn't matter. What matters is basically, and you know, I had my problems with Winnie the Pooh when we read Winnie the yes, Pooh. This is for me, this is what Winnie the Pooh should have been. Like this is the book 
that Winnie, like when people talk about what Winnie the Pooh means to them, this is it. It's like, it's so much more interesting, so much more detailed, and so much more character driven. So if anybody likes Winnie the Pooh and is a grown up, uh, get help. And, no, I think they should read, they should read The Wind in the Willows, and you, you will find such joy. It's so funny and weird, and it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, I, I, I'll, 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 I'll talk about it again once I finish it, which will be in, you know, six months. After <laughs> I get through with reading it to Indy every night. But it's, um, it's just beautiful. And it feels like half the time I'm reading, like I said, 19th century poetry. And then half the time you're reading like a really whimsical children's book. Um, and it's perfectly combined. Well, similarly, I think my book ties into this um, really well. Uh, the book that I was thinking of is a book called i'm going to hold up a picture for you guys um i have it somewhere in my house but i couldn't find it um in our exhaustive prep period <laughs> um <laughs> it is a book called the adventures of super pickle oh, super oh boy pickle? uh it um it came out in I 1972 it's a pop-up book um and i i was just looking on the internet to see how much a new copy would cost because i know that my copies beat to hell on and they're very rare, and they're hundreds of dollars. Um, it was about a mild-mannered pickle living in a city of vegetables where the most evil person is the cabbage head. And he is in love with another pickle. And he eventually he uh, becomes a superhero like Superman by jumping into a pickle jar and coming out as a flying pickle who avenges the day and, and saves the world and ends up fighting carrots and whatnot. I remember this. This is bringing back some crazy buried memories. That's, I totally read this book. I have to find it. Do you have a copy? I have a copy somewhere. Um, oh, you have to bring it. In, in my in my house. I, I was just looking for it, like I said, in my exhaustive um, pre-show <laughs> run-up. Um, but I loved this book. This was my favorite book, and it was a crazy pop-up book. I don't know if this is coming back to you, writer, but it, it popped up from all different angles. So... It used to be pop-up books would just, you'd open it and a thing would pop up. But this had all sorts of polls from every different angle. Um, yeah. It was really inventive. And so I was just looking it up. And it turns out that this was the book that made Robert Sabuda get really into pop-up books. And if you don't know who Robert Sabuda is, Ryder, you're, you're about to um, learn about him for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. He makes these very intricate pop-up books. He did one, um, what's it called, about cookies. Um, hold on. Uh, oh, it's Cookie Count, um, a tasty pop-up. He and we actually have the um, the same literary agent, Robert Sabuda and I. But he's a legend in um, in pop-up books, and I guess this book was um, was really formative for him. But what I remember most about the Adventures of Super Pickle, and this is really weird, is I had had this book my entire life, and the only tactile memory I have, well, one of two tactile memories I have of my childhood with my father when my parents were still together is him reading me the adventures of super pickle wow and and then continuing the story like every night he would give me a new super pickle adventure but he wouldn't use the book he'd just tell me something about super pickle and then super pickle became super stunk and um you know which is a, a yiddish word that basically means asshole um <laughs> um but I like I can remember it as clear as day. My dad reading me Super Pickle, 
Um, but it's when I looked at looked it up, it's it's sort of a legendary book also because it's just bizarre. It's about a pickle who's a superhero that flies around, and I can I can see the pictures of the pickle flying over the city of vegetables. It's a pickle who wears a cape um, with a cravat and an S on his neck yeah, totally or on his chest. This. It's a really weird. Um, it's a really weird book. So I'll I'll find some more info about it, and I'll see if I can if I can find my copy of it. I'll I'll post it up. I also think maybe I, I gave my book to my sister when she had a baby twenty two years ago. Um, but I know I have it somewhere. Um, but that's my weird book, The Adventures of Super Pickle, and it was by Dean Wally and illustrated by Mark Strauss. So there's no way I could get of a copy of it to read to my son because it's. Um, basically I think it's it's super rare um, like you can buy them online if you go to um, ABE books you can get a copy um, for a hundred bucks it looks like yeah which That's is a tough to for a book for that a... <laughs> uh, for a book that your child's gonna rip in two for a super pickle yeah so hold on let me see here I mean to your point Todd I think that most great children's books are weird you know, like, people underestimate how much kids like weird shit. I mean, right. there's so many things that I remember. Um, oh, man. There was a book of, like, sing-songy, basically, like, nonsense words that we thought was, like, the funniest thing in the world. Um, and then the, the recent uh, series of books, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. Um, I mean, it's not incredibly bizarre, but it does have this weirdness to it that I think Super Pickle had. And mm. I can see why you would connect with that, because you're a weird dude. Yeah, it, it was a... I mean, as soon as we said, two minutes before we started recording, we should talk about weird children's books, I was like, Super Pickle. Yeah. yeah it, 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 so there's a there's one there's three copies available on abebooks.com. Three in all of abebooks.com. And the cheapest one is $35, so... You can purchase one that uh, you won't feel bad destroying. Uh, Indigo really likes it and, and yanks out all of the uh, all of the pop ups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's clearly a good segue into um, the book we're going to talk about today, which we'll talk about after the break, which is a lovely children's book about an Arctic adventure gone horribly, horribly wrong. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, we will now, in our great tradition of discussing graphic novels, turn to a children's graphic novel. Um, and is this our first nonfiction graphic novel? Which is it called a novel at that point, or is it? Graphic uh, no, non- it isn't. My friend, right. my friend Dahmer was a graphic memoir. Graphic memoir. There mm. you go. And this is a so graphic, this is a graphic historical. Histor- historical. Mm, something that sounds a good graphic historical book. I don't know. It's a children's book um, written by William Grill called Shackleton's Journey. And uh, William Grill, as far as I can tell, this is his first book. Um, He is an illustrator, uh, London-based, who does a lot of illustrations for various magazines and newspapers. Um, And this book won a crapload of awards, including the Best Illustrated Children's Book Award from the New York Times Book Review. It's the story of Ernest Shackleton, 
who led an expedition beginning in 1914 to Antarctica. And um, the goal was to make it through the ice and hike over to the South Pole and make it to the South Pole. Um, and I guess, do we want to spoil? Because it's only, I mean, we're just, this is. Spoiler. I mean, are we're spoiling history. A yeah, lot of right. people know this. <laughs> Do we uh, tell everyone did, about JFK? Did not J- make it. JFK doesn't make it. JFK <laughs> does not make it. <laughs> right. Todd, I'm not there yet. So Shackleton <laughs> does not make it to the South Pole. Uh, this this journey turns into kind of a disaster, um, but a successful disaster, I think, as far as Antarctic journeys or North Pole journeys go. This is one of the more positive outcomes, even though they didn't make it. Uh, so this book is a really cool, interesting style and approach to graphic novels and, in general and telling a historical story. Um, what did you guys think of it? I thought it was super cool. I mean, it's um, the the art is really uh, is is the art's really great. <laughs> I'll put it I'll put it that way. He he does a a lot of work with the conveying of ice. Um, and the vastness of ice and of the uh, of the Arctic Circle and of isolation and pressure, um, you know the story is the story. So if you already know the story, you know that they get stuck in the ice for like nine months or whatever it is, and then you know they have to crawl out and all sorts of other shit happens. Um, but it was uh, I, I can see how it would be a a good story to scare the living crap out of a child to never ever explore anything and i think that's wise <laughs> ha, that's funny <laughs> i i, I always know when something's funny scary. when julia tells me that's funny and doesn't <laughs> laugh uh, well i meant that's interesting because i don't find this off-putting uh this would not prevent me as a child from exploring and I really love this too, but it sounds like for a little bit of a different reason. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound like a pun, but I don't mean it as a pun, okay? What I liked about this book <laughs> was that it is very cold. It is... Yes. <laughs> it's not emotional. Uh, it's very fact-based, and it's uh, it's all about cataloging what was on the ship and the number of dogs and their names and the men and the terms and all that stuff. And I thought that was just a really wonderful way to draw children or actually anyone into a historical period. Because, you know, like, let's face it, all these people are dead. They tried to be this uh, legendary part of history. They lost the race. Uh, You know, history almost forgot Shackleton and this whole expedition. And now he's sort of become popular again for, I'm not really sure why, but... Um, he's much more in the American imagination right now. Um, and I just liked well, how they, there was that didn't distance. They, didn't they recently find um, a completely preserved shack of his? Didn't that just happen? I don't or know. I no, I think you're confusing. That was. Are you just thinking of the word shack and Shackleton? <laughs> no, it's... Uh, no, I know what you're talking about. There was recently they found, and it was like, they still had whiskey and Yeah, food. that's him. That's and, him. That was Shackleton? They found that? Yeah. Oh, cool. Because I have, um, I'm in a whiskey tasting club, and they did a limited run a couple years ago of the recreation of the whiskey that they found. Um, And I had some of Shackleton's whiskey. It was really cool. Um, Oh, how cool is that? Yeah, isn't that awesome? Yeah, so this was was like a year or two ago, you know, they, they 
got to that hut where he had lived during the expedition and underneath the floor they found bottles and stuff something like that right am mm-hmm. i am i remembering i'm gonna this look correctly? it up i'm gonna look it up i don't want to oh yes be wrong. arctic or antarctic explorer sir ernest Hen- henry shackleton's rare scott scotch returned to the frozen wilds and there's a picture of his shack here um yeah there's a whole thing huh so I think that's why, because he endures because he endured, it turns out. Um, yeah. And the super cold where he was. Well, there's also a book that I read called In the Kingdom of Ice. Hampton Sides. Yeah, In the Kingdom mm-hmm. of Ice by Hampton Sides, which really goes into detail and, and, and you know tells, it's a, obviously an adult version of the Shackleton's journey. Um, and that's it's a really good book. Uh, so I kind of knew this story going into it, but, but this is a really interesting take. I feel like it has that cold distance of history, that calculated measurement of what was interesting or difficult about it that I would not expect from a children's book that I simultaneously feel like is more appealing to children than talking about how afraid they were and how dangerous it all was. And, I mean, that is mentioned, but, I mean, like, let's read a little bit of the language. It's so, mm-hmm. it's so direct. Um, let's see. Endurance stuck. Uh, finally, after battling bravely through over 700 miles of pack ice, endurance was overcome. As far as the eye could see, she was surrounded. After waiting 10 days, Shackleton ordered the fires to be put out in order to conserve fuel. I mean, it's just, it's very robotic. And it's, right. uh, it's all in basically like Times New Roman. I mean, it's very, the, it's not about the text. All the emotion comes from the illustration and the color. Right. And, and there's, there's a lot of stuff. So you had mentioned earlier the, the listing of the dogs. So early on in the book, uh, he talks about how there was a cargo of 99 dogs that were sent from Canada to London to be selected for... Um, inclusion on the ship as work dogs they ended up taking 69 of the dogs and and he goes to list them he says uh the dogs came from mongrel mixture of breeds including newfoundland st bernard's eskimo dogs etc the average weight of each dog was 100 pounds they included alti amundsen blackie bob bosun bristol brownie and he goes and he lists like four dozen dogs and then you find out that each crew member was assigned at least one dog to care for, and many developed strong bonds with them. And you just think, oh, well, that's a... That, I wasn't expecting to learn that aspect of the voyage, because all I'm thinking of when I see these dogs on a ship that I know is about to get stuck into the ice is, oh, they're going to have to go ahead and eat those dogs. Right. Um, well, not turns only out it, not to happen. I, I also, not only does <laughs> he... God. he he lists the dog's names. He also draws a portrait Each of every dog. dog. So you yeah. have a page of just the dogs. And it's not like it's yeah. a detailed portrait. Um, that's what I love. I love that this, the, the, the illustration style is brilliant. And it's so, um, you know, it's childlike in some ways. It's very simplistic. And yet manages to convey detail accurately. Um, and give like I got more of a sense of what it was like to be on this ship or on this journey from this book than I did from In the Kingdom of Ice, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Um, like in the Kingdom of Ice, for instance, I, I was a little worried when I read this dog list because in the Kingdom of Ice it describes how they had to shoot the dogs, and it's like a big part of their journey is having to kill these dogs and which dogs are they going to kill, 
and which ones are they going to keep and how that makes the crew members feel like there's a lot of emotion around these dogs in you know the historical account and he avoids that in this book mm-hmm. because it's a children's book and they don't you know you don't want to have to linger on that um so in some ways it's it's a lot less detailed and yet still more emotional like this representation just this page of the dogs almost did more for me than reading the account in in the kingdom of ice because it was like oh each each of the dog get got a drawing each dog got a drawing and for some reason that made it a little more real and it, right in the same way with you know the, the, really i for me the the use of space on the page is incredible because it's not broken into panels at all um no it's, free it's not a comic book or a graphic novel in any organized way so when you turn the page you're confronted with the vastness of the sea done as the entire page or you know the size of an iceberg and it's drawn out for you and, and for some reason this impressionistic sketchy style works so well to give you the sense of um, isolation or size or um, you know whatever he's trying to convey it really captures the mood and 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 size of things well by by blasting through the panels and or not having any panels um, which, like you were saying, Julia, works as in perfect counterpoint to the coldness of the text or the, the bare facts of the text. This sort of like, mm-hmm. it's a very English book. Didn't you guys get this? Like, you just want to hear yes. it read to you in like a, a, a cool English accent with its stiff upper lip and like, oh, we made it, you know? And then I love like when they just talks about how they entertained themselves through the winter and like kept their spirits up with song and dance and plays and like sealed the hull of the boat with oil paint oh right right. (laughs) there's all these cute little touches (laughs) he's able to convey a strange sense of both um claustrophobia and joy at the same time Mm -hmm. so for instance on page uh 28 if you're reading along at home um they're stuck um in the in, in the ice but there's a drawing of um the uh of of a dinner basically and it says despite the pressures of leadership shackleton knew it was vital to keep the crew's morale high on midwinter's day the crew celebrated with speeches songs toasts and a rousing rendition of the national anthem and then there's this very slim drawing of just people with you know toasting and it, it you get a sense of the space on the ship and you also get this weird sense of joy, even though you, mm-hmm. you see no expressions on anyone's mm-hmm. faces. Um, but what's cool is that the next picture, it's a severe blizzard a few weeks later, saw winds of between 60 and 90 miles an hour, and Dogtown was buried under five feet of snow. So the next picture is that same length of space, of height and width, and it's all just the conveyance of wind through uh, slashing blue lines. Um, or purple. I'm colorblind, so I don't really know. <laughs> it's so brilliant. Because you look at those two things collided together on the page, right. and you feel like the warmth and coziness of being inside the ship, and the like chaos and freezing temperatures of being outside. It's really perfect. And they're, the fact that they're the same size panel on the same page yeah, together. It's really cool. I, I love it. I, I think this book is really, really cool. So do you guys think this is a children's book or a graphic novel? Um... Well, I I think it's it's a children's book because of the simplicity of the storytelling yeah. and and the way that it is being told. But it's a children's book written so that adults can enjoy it. 
But it also asks fundamental questions about the human condition and a fundamental question that I've been wondering myself lately. Um, so I, I read this and then there was that horrible earthquake in Nepal and all of those people died, including all those people that were buried on Everest um, or who died, um, you know, fleeing the avalanche on Everest. And I'm trying to figure out why we do the things we do. Like these guys went up there. There was no presumption that Shackleton's people should live. Like they had no technology. They should have died. Um, and we climb Everest. We we go up there and we fight the elements to do it. And I, that's a really, it's an unusual thing. And I think this book, I think, allows children the idea of knowing that that going on a journey like this has a uh, experiential value and also a social value and that you might bond with people and animals. But for me, it, it's also like, fuck, stay home. <laughs> so, yeah. Someone else can go. You don't right. need well, to the go. Comparison, the comparison I was making in my mind, because I just, there was a, an article in the New York, the New Yorker, I think a couple weeks ago about the, um, about Mars missions mm -hmm. and people you know preparing for the isolation of being you know on a one-way trip to mars essentially right. which is something that nasa is kind of trying to prepare for because that's that's where we're at right like that's the mm -hmm. equivalent of what they were doing back then um, right that's sort of what are we going to return like is this possible and we we've done space trips before but we've never done a space trip like that right and i was thinking like would i do that would i and part of me wants to say, I think I, I would want to be that person. But then, honestly, it's the fact that I have a son that I would tell, like, I'm like, no, 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 no. But I think if I was, like, 25 and not married and did, I, I would probably want to be one of those people, like, signing up for a one-way trip to Mars. Because that's, that's... That, that's like a great David Bowie song. <laughs> It's well, a crazy adventure, but like, what else are we doing? Like, what are we doing now that's so important besides right. destroying our Earth? Like, honestly, like, there's, I, I feel like it's in the best interest of human nature at this point. It's not just about the glory of exploration. Like, now we're at the point where, well, our planet's only going to last another generation or two. So we're going right. to have to find someplace else. So we better start figuring out how to do that and how to survive. Um, right. I don't know. Uh, so that, that was my thinking is, could I keep up hope? the way that Shackleton's men kept up right. hope in, on, you know, in the face of such danger. And the thing is, it's, it's hope for what? It's hope... In, in their case, they weren't saving mankind. They, they were exploring. And so there's not... There's not like, we, when we talk about going to Mars, it's, part of it is, you know, oh, we're going to run out of water here mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, or whatever sci-fi movie it is. In their case, it was to, to see what was out there. Um, they weren't gonna. They weren't gonna cure cancer or AIDS or something. Um, and so there's. I, I think it's notable that you know there weren't married couples on the ship, right? <laughs> you know, it was all men. Um, there's. I think there's something about that. That's. I mean, maybe it's just the time. Well, it's that. It's that. It's that. really. It's like. It's that 19th century spirit of adventure, and it's sort of Shackleton's kind of like the last hurrah of that too, you know, because he's later. He's like 1914. Right. It's like World War One kind of took us out of that period of, you know, that that you know, and also technology made it easier. Like we right. developed we just, the automobile, we developed things that trains got to the point. Everything got to the point where it wasn't that big of a deal to do a trip like this. Um, right. 
and and we started turning on each other too, and that became more pressing and take over the twentieth century. But the idea of 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 that that the world could hold creatures that we haven't explored, um, you know, that Jules Verne sort of sense of wonder at what the world could contain and and what you could find in another continent or right. Atlantis might actually be a thing that's out there. Like it's hard for us to to have any of that because the Earth is mapped, covered, Google right. Earth. We can well. That's actually that's that's not really true, and I'll get to that in a second. But like, I, I think there's a a sense of personal challenge and of group camaraderie that was very much well. Personal challenge is kind of the individualistic point of view that we're coming at this from at this moment in time. You know, I when I heard about the earthquakes, I was. I thought of Everest mm-hmm. first because I, as I mentioned in the last episode, just reread Into Thin Air like last week. So a horrible, horrible thing to think about. But one thing that I've um, heard is I've, I, I'm friends with a, a Antarctic Arctic scholar who knows a lot about Shackleton, and he mentioned that you know when we think about going into the Arctic or the Antarctic or basically like the cold wild, we often think of it as this isolating thing but in this time you had to travel with such a large crew that it was very social experience and in a time where industrialization had you know changed culture forever you know this was a time where men could get away from their wives and their families and just like be with their buddies Mm. and have this big male bonding challenging experience out in the wild which is just really interesting I mean I I think we still seek those experiences but other thing I Ryder and to I have a Ryder podcast to do that one, instead of going to the Arctic. Hey, you want yeah. to the Arctic, or you want to cool. you want to get you. online? Read books about the Arctic. Super manly. Books. <laughs> Let's read Wind in the Willows. Well, and talk um, about it. Yeah. So I read a book about a pickle. So well, it's a pickle. So one thing that. Oh my god. Why am I a part of this? Oh god. Anyway. <laughs> One thing that I'm really curious about is there is a vastly unexplored area of the Earth, and I'm shocked that more people aren't into it, which is the oceans underwater. Right. I mean, we have the capability. I'm surprised that more people don't scuba dive, that more people aren't doing these deep James Cameron level, you know, projects (laughs) underwater, because that is our vast unexplored space, and... That is, that's like where our fucking problem is. You know, we're ruining an area of the planet that we don't even understand at all. You know, barely mm-hmm. understand. So, you know, not like I think tourists should be going 10,000 leagues under the sea or anything. But this, this age of exploration did push, you know, environmental conservation forward. It pushed, you know, how can you love your planet without knowing it? You know, so right. I wish there was more of a sense of exploration of the deep sea um, or of coral right. reefs or whatever so that we could have a sense of what we're preserving or losing. I mean, so much of what is saddens us about losing the Arctic and the Antarctic spaces comes from the same, you know, almost nostalgia for the ice that these explorers themselves, you know, gave to us through their, well, through I their expeditions. I think... I think the difference between exploring underwater and exploring above water is a simple one, which is that you can die faster underwater. <laughs> you know, sure, I, I think we we know we know the real fear, which is you are 
10 seconds away from dying immediately um, underwater uh, or less. And I think, you know, normal people don't want to do that. But there's also, like, we know that there's monsters underwater that will eat us also. Like, we don't think there's monsters on Everest. We just think there's snow. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a shark underwater. So I think fear, a, a, a tangible fear, plays a larger role. And that stops the exploration. When, when I was a kid, yeah, though... Yeah, it's easier to write off Everest, right. but you can't breathe up there either. And you oh, can fall into a hole and no one will ever see you. Have again. you guys seen those pictures of, of all the dead people on Everest? This is before, obviously, the earthquake. Yeah. Where oh, they're, yeah. they're just there. They're just preserved dead people all along the Everest. It's it's horrifying. <laughs> It's too ta- it's too exhausting to bring them right. down. I mean, the amount of energy it takes. The amazing thing about climbing Everest is that you feel like shit while you're doing it. You know that you can't enjoy the experience even because you're basically slowly suffocating. Right. So you know you go up, you come down, and then you're like, "I did it." Is my understanding of the experience. Uh, but yeah, it's too. It's very difficult to bring those people down. Although I think there have been a few efforts to bring some of them back. But I think if you climb to the summit, you can see uh, Mallory and right. many other very famous climbers. You can just see their body on the side of the trail. Yeah, and there's that documentary about the the hike, the people hiking up the mountainside, and they they pass this crevice where there's been a dead person for many years and there's another person sitting next to them dying and they, there's nothing they can do like a present day person they touch him and he's still alive but is is almost dead there it was i saw this it was like two months ago that i saw this is that the documentary um, about the some, k2 climb yeah it must have been it must have been something like that um, oh god yeah that, yeah that that's crazy stuff but you know i i think as a children's book um you know, there's a lot of sense of wonder, but there's also just the sort of simple things. You know, he he draws spools of thread. You know, he draws dog igloos. Um, mm-hmm. But there's this part in the middle of the book that's that I absolutely love because there's no words in it, um, and it's just it's a gatefold of um, of waves. Uh, well, there's two of that. There's one where there's a boat in the gatefold of waves, and there's one where there's just nothing. Oh. Um, it's waves and what looks like small bits of person. It's sailing to Elephant Island mm-hmm. portion of the uh, of the book, um, but it just shows. It's just furious. It just looks furious. This I'm talking about I that part that. for those yeah, of you that's one of my favorites. at home. <laughs> um, and I think that's as a kid that would be a pretty cool thing to see. Um, I mean, it's a pretty cool thing to see as an adult, actually. Um, but it's for sure a children's book. To answer your original question, did you ever see Rockwell Kent's? illustrations for Moby Dick. Have you guys ever seen these? <laughs> I, I've Are not, those... no. <laughs> it's incredible. And I, I have... Is it Moby Dick in pictures, or is it something else? There was an illustrated edition that came out for... Um, and it, I, w- I want to say it was like in the 1930s or 1940s. Um, and it was an artist named Rockwell Kent who did an illustrated edition of Moby Dick that is famous because it is so beautiful and interesting and uh you know copies of this book are are expensive and hard to find but i was reminded a lot of that with this because it has a lot of the same energy and that sort of sketchy impressionistic quality and 
Um, I wonder if that was a conscious influence, mm. but it's some some of my favorite illustrations are from that. Mm. Oh um, yeah, they're woodcuts. Cool. They're woodcuts. Yeah, oh. they were woodcuts. And he was, I, as far as I know, he it was just like a sort of a publisher said, "Oh, you do good woodcuts. You should do it." Like it wasn't supposed to be such a great work of art, but then the the, the woodcuttings were so beautiful that it became like some of his greatest work. Mm. Um, just this illustrated edition of of Moby Dick. Interesting. Um, and people should look it up. Maybe, maybe we'll post a link online. Wow. I love it. Some of these are awesome. I'm looking now. Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of, for me, cool. like, I, you know, I came across, I actually wrote a whole thick essay in college. I did a whole research on the, the art inspired by Moby Dick. And um, th- this was my favorite. <laughs> this is my, uh, his stuff. It, it's the most literal because the, he was literally an illustration, an illustrated version. But there's something about it that just conveyed um, a lot of aspects of the book really well. Um, and it reminds me this this book reminded me of his stuff so check it out if you like moby dick so this might be a good way for me to read moby dick it's in pictures you say (laughs) (laughs) like i could well what i what i was talking about well first of all we've talked about before there's an a version of moby dick that's like 10 words for like tiny babies so you can read that one right um but what i was talking about is moby dick in pictures which is a different totally different thing um put out by tin house where uh this illustrator uh, oh yeah he, he, uh, he drew a picture for every page right. so one image for each page of moby dick it's it's good i've talked yeah, about it I before remember that. yeah but no these are tin house does interesting stuff you know that we we i don't think we've ever really talked about tin house but just ever briefly great small press put out books put out a great literary magazine put out they, they have their own um summer literary festival where you can go and, and learn creative writing um run by Alyssa chappelle and rob spillman um we it, it's important to remember that there are people out there who do good stuff for literature that aren't you know just giant publishers they're just small organizations and then they put out moby dick in, in pictures mm-hmm. also yeah all right well i think we all love this book yeah yeah we One of the agree few times on ever. something <laughs> we do and if if anyone's thinking about making a expedition to antarctica really this is the book to read did did you have any special insight julia because of your whale ship adventure to um while reading shackleton's uh journey i guess the only thing i have to offer and i'm so not an expert is that when i went on the charles w morgan I mean, you don't realize how small these ships are, how intimate the quarters are. You know, this is not a cruise ship. This is you're with people absolutely right. all the time, no privacy. So to add to that a survival environment, I mean, that's just incredible to think about. And dogs. And all those dogs. And dogs. It's a lot of barking dogs. That's 69 so, yeah, dogs. I, think I mean, I love dogs, but it's a lot of dogs. When we think dogs. about exploration on the sea or on dogs the ice, and a lot of we dudes. think of... Like being trapped with like that many dudes for that long. Oh my god! Yeah, let's let, let's let's drill down into this a little bit. A lot of dogs, a lot of dudes. It's kind of. I mean, in some ways, it would be pressure. really fun for like a week. But like, Jesus, I would kill myself. Keep it, a lot of fear. Spirits up. Not a lot of. Not a lot of things to do. I'm just saying, there's a darkness that exists in Shackleton's journey that I think isn't. 
Yeah, I mean, adequately discussed. We think of these spaces as so vast, but you know, it's still there's still a claustrophobia to be a human being with all our survival needs that we will never escape, no matter how large the space is that we're exploring. Wow. He's a credit to his race. What race is that? The hundred yard dash. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read The Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson. Literary Disco is edited, produced, and saved and interrupted every week by Tucker Ives. Yep. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>